Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today is really a day I've been looking forward to. It's one of my great honors and privileges of being President of the United States that I get to spend time <laughs> with people like, like Admiral Davidson. It's, it's um, I guess I've known the last six PACOM commanders and have, and have um, gotten to spend time speaking with them about China. And what's consistent about every single one of them is it's the best and the brightest of America. And Admiral Davidson fits right into that, being the best and the brightest of America. If I went over his whole bio, we wouldn't have time for one minute of questions. So let me just jump uh, right into it. Uh, you're about to give a talk to the members of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, which is going to be a longer talk than this podcast. Can you give me the, the highlights, a two, three-minute summary? Yeah, sure, Steve. Thank you, and thank you for having me here today. I appreciate it very much. Um, we're, of course, going to talk about the competition with China, uh, which, in my view, uh, represents the long-term strategic threat to the United States and the rules-based international order. And we'll talk a little bit about what they're doing in the diplomatic realm, the information realm, the military realm, the economic realm, how they're moving about the Indo-Pacific uh, to begin with, but their global reach as well. We'll talk a little bit about the complexities of the relationship, how the countries in the region are viewing it, um, and the pressure that's been put on them by Chinese activities uh, in, again, in the diplomatic information and economic realms uh, specifically, um, to try to get them to choose between economic partnership with China or a security relationship with the United States. Interesting. The, um, let's start with, so your speech covers all of those. I mean, one of the, um, I remember one of your predecessors mm -hmm. um, was asked, what, is, what did he think was likely to be the greatest threat to security in the, what was then the, the, the Asia Pacific. We didn't call it Indo-Pacific then. That was only when you became commander. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, climate change will cripple the security environment, probably more likely than the other scenarios we all often talk about. Mm -hmm. Where does climate change fit in kind of your view of the threats to the Pacific. Yeah, well, I frequently talk about the five uh, threats that are, are of concerns to me. Uh, the effects from climate change are clearly one of them. Uh, it, it's no secret that last year, uh, Indo-PACOM, our components, service headquarters that work for us, spent considerable amount of time uh, with active duty soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and Coast Guardsmen on the islands of Saipan and Tinium, which right. suffered from a 500-year storm last year. And wherever I go and I meet with political and military leaders, particularly across the Pacific Island chain, uh, they can highlight for me and make, and from their personal experience over the course of their lifetime, the changes that they're seeing in their island environments um, from childhood uh, to this day and age. Um, it's, uh, I, I think it's important to note uh, uh, along this path, uh, I think climate change is an area in which we should be cooperating uh, in those discussions. How do the trade talks, which you're going to resume uh, next week in Washington, how do they fit into kind of your 
views of what's going on in the Asia Pacific? Well, I, I think one of the things that we should really focus on is the changes in China um, in the wake of the economic lift that they've benefited from over the course of the last 40 years. Um, uh, at the beginning, um, all the advantages that the WTO could have, um, uh, uh, that would have accrued to China, uh, worked quite effectively. Now China is the second largest economy on the planet. Um, they're in a much different place than the poor nation that they were. Um, many of those rules need to change. The, um, in, in the talk and in your testimony, you talk about 70 years of peace in Asia. I guess I first arrived in Asia in 1972, mm -hmm. um, and it was not a time of peace. And you talk about how the values and, and you know, kind of the U.S.-led order mm -hmm. led to a peaceful 70 years. I see it as a peaceful 40 years, mm -hmm. and I dated from the establishment of diplomatic relations. How does kind of Vietnam and Korea kind of figure in that concept of 70 years of peace? Yeah, I... Um, I'd say worded quite differently than, than that, Steve. I mean, looking all the way back to World War II and including Vietnam and Korea, the United States uh, was there in the region not to conquer others, but to liberate those countries from authoritarianism. Um, that is a, a set of values that the United States has long beheld um, from our inception and uh, signing of the Constitution. And it's something that competes extraordinarily well uh, across the whole of the Indo-Pacific. I routinely, routinely um, hear from all of our allies and partners um, uh, across the region how welcome we are, and it's because of our values in the United States. It wasn't a peaceful time, though. In, you know, that the Korean War and the Vietnam War, you know, many of them, you were a little later at the Naval Academy. Certainly some of my classmates died in the Vietnam War, not mm -hmm. in the Korean War. I was way too young. So, really wasn't it the establishment of diplomatic relations with China and our ability to kind of talk to the Chinese that has in part led to this peaceful era in the Asia-Pacific region? Yeah, certainly uh, engagement uh, throughout our lifetimes uh, uh, and throughout the, the whole of the Republic here has been important to us um, and I think important to the global prosperity that has resulted and uh, peace as well. Um, as I mentioned before, we're, we're absolutely um, willing to engage with China. We engage with China routinely. I have as recently as last month. And uh, we look forward um, to cooperating where we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I think in your talk, the conclusions are very compelling. Mm -hmm. I think all of the conclusions which you reach, we should cooperate on North Korea, we should increase mill-to-mill -mill contact, we should have better mill-to-mill -mill contact. I mean, these are all compelling conclusions, even when I think the analysis is one which I would differ with. Um, you know, you talk about China engaging in that classic shell game of authoritarian dictators uh, who trade nationalism for the lack of progress in a meaningful reform agenda. I've been living there on and off for 40 years, and I can tell you, even though in the last few years we may not have been seeing progress, the progress that we've seen in these 40 years is extraordinary. When I first lived there, I could not walk down the street without being followed by, by Ministry of Public Security people. Kids who graduated from college would be sent to places to work 
Chinese couldn't travel. Now we have 350,000 of them in the United States. We have an economy that is majority private, not state-owned. So when we characterize China as failing on reform, I don't think we're doing us any favors, ourselves any favors. Is it fair to characterize them that way? Well, I think uh, certainly the free and open international order that the United States has led over the course of the last 40 years has helped uh, lift uh, hundreds of millions out of poverty in China. I absolutely uh, believe that that is uh, true. Um, but when I look at the exercise of authoritarianism, uh, the treatment of uh, the Uyghur Muslims yep. in the Western China, where yep. there's a million people in concentration camps right now. And I look at uh, what's going on with the protest activity in uh, Hong Kong. The rhetoric from China, uh, President Xi and the party is quite alarming. Mm -hmm. um, they're calling people uh, terrorists who look to me like they're only protesting for their civil liberties. Yeah, yeah, fair points. The, um, I was surprised that, that PACOM commander was opining on economic issues. I think it's a good thing, because I think obviously you're, you're quite right that economic and security are now inextricably intertwined. Um, but I noticed in one point you, it, it says, let me make sure I get it right, um, China's embraced an economic model dependent, and it's only in part, on currency manipulation. That's an interesting statement. It's just not supported by the economics anymore that the IMF, the World Bank, uh, international institutions don't agree on it. The U.S. Treasury rules, even though the U.S. Treasury has branded China currency manipulator, it doesn't qualify under those rules because its ratio of current account surplus to GDP has moved from 10% to 0.03%. So how does that, how does that well, kind so of figure? Steve, I have to turn it back on you. Um, if do they allow their currency to float like the U.S. allows the U.S. dollar to float? Um, if it doesn't float like that, then it's being manipulated behind the scenes. No, currency manipulation, I would argue, is it, it's a term of art mm -hmm. that the U.S. government treasury regulations use. And, and when we branded China currency manipulator, we violated our own rules because one of those criteria, as I said, is this ratio of current account surplus uh, to GDP, and it's gone from, from 10 to 3. Um, you know, we hosted the, the uh, state counselor, uh, foreign minister Wang Yi, last week for, mm -hmm. a, for a dinner. Um, and he says, we hope the United States, and this is a quote from his speech to us, we hope the United States will continue to play its due role of peace and prosperity, and we welcome it. How does that square with kind of the way we're thinking about China now, or the administration, or you were thinking about well, China now? Well, President Trump announced a vision at the East Asia Summit in the fall of 2017 about a free and open Indo-Pacific. And I think fundamental to that free and open concept uh, and the principles that support it is the objective of peace and prosperity for all. Um, we would welcome China to that free and open uh, international order. Uh, would like to see them uh, take less pernicious activity in the region, whether it's in the information realm or the economic realm, um, be less threatening with their military forces in the South China Sea and East China Sea, and be a contributor to global security. The free and open Indo-Pacific, how do countries like uh, Vietnam or uh, North Korea fit into it? Obviously, they are not free in any 
states that, that don't share the values that we have. Uh, well, certainly North Korea is uh, not a free state, uh, Steve. Um, and in fact, in the, in the very shortest term, it's its most immediate threat um, to the security of its neighbors, uh, certainly in the Indo-Pacific and to the Indo-Pacific uh, region writ large. Um, and until we get the final fully verifiable denuclearization of uh, North Korea, it will remain the most immediate threat. But how are you reaching out to Vietnam, which is also not free? Uh, it's an area that I've traveled to myself here just in the last few months. Um, I can tell you traveling around um, Vietnam, there is energy. Um, when you travel in the south, see the signage, all the vehicles, the cars, um, the businesses that are booming, uh, it is an area and a uh, country that is coming um, to uh, uh, to be uh, uh, a net contributor to the economic relationships across the region. Last question, this decoupling that is being talked mm -hmm. about from the perspective of PACOM, mm -hmm. good, bad, neutral? The decoupling of the two economies where we're seeing kind of separate ecosystems in the technology sphere in the, as you say, in the, part of this is generated by information warfare mm -hmm. that we feel it's necessary mm -hmm. to have those. And obviously, Huawei has played an important role in that. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I, I view the decoupling as a choice that uh, China is actually making. Um, what we're asking is for some safeties, you know, in a free and open concept um, that things like data um, won't be captured by the state and used for pernicious purposes uh, writ large. So it's China is the one that's choosing to decoupling uh, uh, in the economy. Yeah. What they, of course, argue is, you know, increasing restrictions on Chinese investment, you know, the bans, the temporary ban on ZTE, the current ban on Huawei is, is precipitating the decoupling, not Chinese actions. Thank you. The, um, well, this podcast has shown why you are the best and the brightest and why it is such a pleasure to talk China with you. Uh, Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve, uh, for having me. And I appreciate the, the dialogue and the discussion. I look forward uh, with the dialogue with all the members. Thank you.